0: The scripture text for today's message is 2 Timothy chapter 3, starting in verse 14, reading through chapter 4 and verse 4. 2 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 14. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom,
1: Incline our hearts to your testimonies, O oh God, and not to getting gain. Let's pray for a great heart change, a sea change, in our hearts with regard to the Word of God. May it not be a burden or a mere duty, but a delight. And so disincline us towards television. The newspaper, the magazine, the internet, and grant us to be inclined, hungry, desirous of the Word of God more than these things. This is a miracle. The human soul is deeply corrupt and fallen. It does not delight in the things of the Spirit. We must put to death what is earthly in us and pray that you would work the miracle of new affections. And I pray that you would use the means of this message to awaken supernatural desires for the Bible in our lives. So that we would be transformed by it and would display the glory of Christ in the way we talk and the way we feel and the way we act, treat each other, the way we love the world and the way we sacrifice. This will not happen without an immersion in the word of God. And so I pray for it. Come and Make this worship service, the worship in song and the worship now over the word, effective for the glory of your name and for the inclination of our souls towards the scriptures. In Jesus' name I ask it. Amen. So here we are now at the end of prayer week and we always at Bethlehem sandwich prayer week. ...with a focus on prayer and a focus on the Word. And there's a reason for that. There are five reasons for that, in fact, that we link prayer and the Word. Here they are. Number one, much of the Bible is prayer. Psalms are almost all prayer. Two, the Bible is full of commands and exhortations and encouragements to pray. Pray without ceasing. That's in the Bible. Third we are told to pray first john 5:14 according to the will of god and the bible is the revelation of the will of god fourth the word of god cannot be truly desired or spiritually comprehended or savingly spoken without the holy spirit whom we ask for in prayer So if the word's going to be used aright, we must pray down the power to desire it, grasp it, speak it effectively. Fifth, the Bible is very plain that you must be saturated by the word of God if you're to have an effective prayer life. Here's the key verse. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. If my words abide in you, if you're saturated with the Bible, ask away and it'll happen. You see the link? Five reasons at least, and that's probably the tip of the iceberg for why in prayer week we deal with prayer last week and we deal with the word. They go together. The difference this year is that we are commending a new translation of the Bible and giving an account for that. So my message is going to be a little different in that I'm going to make a case for why we're doing this. Here's the motion that was presented to the elders on June 3rd of last year and unanimously approved. That we make the English Standard Version, the preaching Bible of Bethlehem Baptist Church, and that we change our pew Bibles when funds are available and that we create fighter verse material based on the ESV, not getting rid of the old ones, but adding to them. Now, all of that has happened as of today. And what remains to be done is to tell you why, so that I hope from your own heart, you will seriously consider becoming an ESV person instead of an NIV or NASB or New King James or New Living Bible or message person or whatever you use. I presented an eight-page rationale to the elders when I made that motion, and uh, it is on the website at Desiring God and will be on the Bethlehem website. And you can read the whole thing, but I want to give you a flavor of the rationale by reading you the first paragraph of it. I love the Bible the way I love my eyes, not because my eyes are lovely, but because without them I can't see Anything that's lovely. Without the Bible, I could not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Without the Bible, I could not know the unsearchable riches of Christ. Without the Bible, I would not know that I am a great sinner and that Christ is a great Savior. I love the Bible because it gives the wisdom That leads to salvation and shows me that this salvation is nothing less than seeing and savoring the glory of Christ forever. And then provides for me inexhaustible ways of seeing and knowing and enjoying Christ. We who live in English speaking countries cannot should not cease to thank God for the abundance of the availability of the Bible that we have in our language. It's been in English for over 500 years. And thus we have universities built around it. And we have... Thousands of books built around it. We have ministries built around it. Our marriages are built around it. Our culture is largely built around it. Our language from the King James Bible is largely built around it. The impact of the English Bible is simply incalculable. And our gratitude should be endless. And oh, how we should pray that more of you would rise up to go out with people like Wycliffe Bible translators because there are still thousands of people's who don't begin to have this blessing, and they ought to. And who knows, but that the Lord may tarry another 500 years so that a a preacher in some language in Afghanistan could stand up in 500 years and say, we've had the Bible 500 years, and now largely our culture is built around it, and universities are built around it, and language is built around it in that once Muslim land. Oh, dream on and pray for Bible translation. So I want to clarify clearly, lest you get an attitude mistake here about my commending the ESV. Even though I love the English Standard Version and will urge us to move toward it corporately, I want to say that if you could read only one Bible and it was my least favorite version, I would say, read it, read it, read it, immerse yourself in it, memorize it, because better to have a translation that's my least favorite than to have none. The NIV is going to take a hit from me this morning because I want to try to Wean you off of it. But I thank God for the millions. I don't doubt to say millions of souls that have been saved through the NIV. You hear me now? Though I'm going to ask you to consider another version just like the King James and just like the Revised Standard Version, and just like the Living Bible and just like the new message. God is willing to bless Anything that approximates his revelation. And I thank God for his grace because there aren't any perfect translations. But we've had a problem now for the last 30 years, almost 40, in the English-speaking world with regard to translations. The most popular English translation in the evangelical church is the New International Version. And the problem with the New International Version is that it's a paraphrase in large measure rather than a more literal translation. When I first read it just a couple of miles from here while I was a professor over at Bethel in 1975, I read it all the way through. My friends were translating it. Uh, And I knew immediately I can never preach from this Bible and I'll never teach from this Bible Not because it's wrong, but because it's loose. It paraphrases in places where I think there ought to be a more literal rendering. It does for the reader what the reader in English should do for themselves. Making decisions about the meaning of certain ambiguous phrases that I want my listeners to make decisions about. And I want to have the right... it without correcting the version to tell you there are several options here and then argue for one of them so that you can see what's there. I don't think translators should make interpretational decisions where they don't have to. And mark me, I'm not naive about this. I know you must interpret when you translate. I know that word-for-word translation is impossible when you switch languages because there are structures in language that don't exist in other languages, and therefore you must adapt, and you can't do word-for-word. It would be nonsense if you tried to go, put the word here, that's English, put the word here. That's That won't work. We all know that. However, where it is possible to bring over into English the very wording with all of its ambiguity, I say, don't preempt my interpretation for me. Let me have something close to what was originally written. Now, there have been several alternatives that you could choose in the last 30 years. You could go with the King James. It always stays in print or the New King James And we preach, I preach for 20 years from the New American Standard Bible. It's a very literal translation. The New American Standard, however, is not as easy to read as it ought to be, I think. So you've got the NIV over here with its less literal and more readable way. And you've got the NASB over here with its less readable, more literal way. And the problem in the last 30 years is that we've been pressed to choose between Bibles that are paraphrasing, like New Living Bible, now the Message, or the NIV. And over here, we've had the real literal ones, like the uh And I would put the King James in that version. The King James has an incredible effect and valuable effect on all these things. So what I'm doing now is commending to you the ESV, it would be a wonderful thing, I think. In fact, I think the ESV has the potential of becoming the dominant preaching, reading, memorizing Bible in the English-speaking world because of certain features that it has. I don't think it will ever, any version will ever eliminate paraphrases. I frankly am thankful for paraphrases. I just wish we'd call them that and use them like that and not make them the standard memorizing, preaching, teaching Bible of the church. I grew up on the Phillips paraphrase. It was wonderful. I loved the Phillips paraphrase back in the 60s. But we called it that. It was right on the front. Paraphrase. You won't see that on the front of any book today. Not even the message. And the message is way looser than anything I ever dreamed. Paraphrases are valuable as commentaries. They're valuable as a man's perspective on what the Bible means. And therefore, I love using them. Bring them alongside. But as far as a study preaching Bible and a memorizing Bible, let's have one that captures readability and literalness in a little better balance or a lot better balance. And I think the ESV is that balance for our day. I don't think there's anything better out there that brings together literalness and readability like the English Standard Version does. One of its great benefits is that it is in the King James lineage. Here's what I mean by that. King James translated uh, 1611, beautiful, powerful, and, and basically very accurate translation. 1880, in Britain, a major revision. 1901, in America, a major revision called the American Standard Version, 1901. 1952, the Revised Standard Version was a revision of the King James and the American Standard Version. So that's what I mean by lineage. you got 1611, 1901, 1952. 1989, the new Revised Standard came out. I had high hopes nobody in the evangelical church, by and large, has embraced that version for one main reason. It is so politically driven on the gender issue. The mainline churches would count the New Revised Standard Version as their main Bible. It has not caught on the evangelical church. I'm glad it hasn't. It's not a good translation, mainly because of that bias. The NIV showed up in... 1975, and it is a totally new translation and does not follow. So you don't have the cadences and the wording of the old King James where they can be preserved. Whereas what the ESV is, and this is a fulfillment of a dream for me, because in 1966, when I was a sophomore in college, I bought my first Revised Standard Version, the 1952 Revised Standard Version. And I've used it to memorize scripture for over 30 years. So you poke me, I quote RSV. It went out of print in 1985. And I always hoped and dreamed, Lord, it would just take a little tweaking to fix it theologically. The evangelical church didn't like the RSV. It seemed liberal because they had a few places where it just went haywire. And... It's got all these these and thou's, and nobody uses those anymore. And I don't want to memorize scripture with just these and thou's anymore. And and so, uh, oh, wouldn't it be wonderful if somebody would just buy the rights to the RSV and just fix it? And that's exactly what Crossway Books did with a big committee headed by J.I. Packer. And now it exists. And basically, it's the King James, American Standard Version, RSV, ESV, the one lineage, and you'll hear if you if you grew up or you love the King James at anywhere along the way or you hear it in our culture, you're going to hear echoes and cadences from the King James. And I think that's a good thing for us. We don't intend to force anybody to make the change here. I got all worked up last night and I'll probably get all worked up here before I'm done. That sounds like. I feel that way that you really have to change, but I don't feel that way. And so take my word for it, even if later on you feel like hmm, he seems to be exercised about this. <laughs> Having said that, I, I do think it would be wonderful if in a few years our children were memorizing the ESV, our adults were memorizing the ESV. And on a Sunday morning, I could stand up here and say, let's say the. Let's lay the Friday verse together, and everybody would just recite the same version. That's the way it was 30, 40 years ago with the King James Version. But uh, with all the new translations, it hasn't been possible to do that anymore. It might come again. Who knows? That's up to God, not us, to make that happen. But let me give you concrete reasons for why I don't think the NIV should be the preaching, memorizing Bible to this church. I'll just give you specific instances of their translation philosophy. And I know these people are good friends of mine. Um, And we just disagree on the philosophy of translation. And my basic plea is that where there is good English possible to preserve the original structure of the language, that we do that so that we can handle it today the way they would have handled it then. Here are some examples. You don't need to look these up. I'll just mention them. Romans one 5 i I'm going to give you the ESV literal and then the NIV paraphrase. Romans one five. the obedience of faith. There's a clear, simple Greek construction called the genitive, obedience of faith. NIV, the obedience that comes from faith. Now, that is one possible meaning of that phrase, but not the only one. Romans three twenty by works of the law NIV by observing the law. That's a huge interpretational decision to think that the very negative phrase works of the law should be translated simply observing the law. Romans thirteen eight, owe no one anything. Now that's a very threatening phrase in a in a church where everybody has a mortgage. And therefore, to lighten it is a high pressure. And so the NIV says, let no debt remain outstanding. Pay your debts. That's not what the text says. It's a very threatening text. George Mueller took it literally. Never had a debt in his life. Not one and didn't believe it. Thought it was sin to have a mortgage. I think we ought to leave that option open because that's what the text says. Oh, no one anything. Hebrews 6, 1. Dead works. NIV. Acts that lead to death. Maybe. Maybe not. Maybe dead works are dead in more ways than where they lead. Let me decide. Good English. Doesn't require this paraphrase. James 2.12. The law of liberty. NIV. The law that gives freedom. Maybe. Or I suspect the liberty is different and deeper. Here's one more. This one I feel strongly about because it really affected the way I preached on Romans 8. And I wanted to make the point. I like to be able to make the point without pulling any rank from the versions. And uh, you may remember back. I doubt it, but maybe we were at Romans 8:35, and the text says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? No. And I pose the question, why? Won't sword separate us? And I entertained the answer of the more health, wealth and prosperity side of things where they say, if you just have enough faith, things go well for you in this life. And maybe the interpretation then would be the sword doesn't separate you because it never reaches your neck. If you trust God. And then I argued against that. In my sermon, because the next verse says in the ESV. And almost all other versions. As it is written, we are being killed all day long. And I simply argued that means the sword doesn't stop at the neck. It goes all the way through. And still we are not separated from the love of Christ. You can't can't get that from the NIV because the NIV says we face death all day long. We face it. And the same possibility would exist then maybe we face it and we don't have to experience it because we trust God enough and He rescues us. That's a bad translation. You see, this is where I'm getting excited and starting to go farther than you thought I might go. We are being killed all day long should not be translated. We face death. That's a that's a weaseling. Therefore, I will never preach from a paraphrase like this. I can't I can't do that. I have to have as many of the words in front of me as is readable. I'm not I know you're going to come to me in years from now and say, well, the ESV is not quite as literal as the NASV here, and I know that. I know that. I'm, I've got a, a literal extreme over here, and I've got a readable extreme over here, paraphrasing. And I'm, I'm not saying the ESV is perfectly located on that continuum. I'm just saying it's the best option we've got going right now and a very good one, I think. So there's my case for moving toward the ESV, there's dozens of them out there for you to get if you want to put it into your library and read it. One of these is so valuable. Just pull it out like that. One of these little ones are so nifty. You can carry your little dagger ESV. I commend it to every woman's purse and to every man's pocket. Let's go to the text. Second Timothy three fourteen to 4, 4. And oh, my. This is worth about mm, six sermons, and I'll tell you um, what three of them would be and then just give you a few minutes on one of them. We could talk here about the enormous importance of preaching the word from verse two of chapter four. Preach the word. Don't just read the Word. Don't just teach the Word. Don't just meditate on the Word. Don't just discuss the Word in small groups. Preach the Word. Or we could look at that dreadful warning not to preach to the itching ears of unspiritual people in verses 3 and 4. Oh, the danger in America today of watering down the Word of God because the Listeners who pay the bills have itching ears that want to hear what pleases. And pastors lose their nerve and don't preach through the full counsel of God and just tell them over and over again light, fluffy things that they want to hear. That's a tragedy. We could talk about that. That would be worth a sermon in verses 3 and 4 of chapter 4. Or we could talk more positively about the inspiration of the Bible in 316. All scripture breathed out by God. No prophecy coming according to any man's will. But men born along by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. We could unpack inspiration. That would be good. But here's what I'm going to do. Gonna focus on verses 16 and 17 and the fact that when the scriptures are handled rightly, they equip us for every good work. Let's read it. Verse 16, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable. Profitable. If you ever feel disinclined to get down and read your Bible, preach this to yourself. This is profitable. More profitable than making money. More profitable than watching television. More profitable than reading the newspaper. This is profitable. Preach it to yourself. Argue with your inclinations. For reproof. For correction. For training in righteousness. That the man of God may be competent. Equipped for every good work. That. Is an astonishing phrase equipped for every good work. Now, here's my paraphrase. Paraphrase is what preachers are supposed to do, not translators. Here's my paraphrase. Every good thing that God expects you to do, the Bible equips you to do. Now, is that a fair paraphrase? That ought not to be in the Bible. What I just said ought not to be in the Bible. In the Bible, it ought to be to make you competent and equipped for every good work. Now, the question is, whoa, what in the world does that mean? Every good work. The Bible is profitable so that the man of God may be competent, equipped For every good work. And so my effort to preach it faithfully is to say everything that God expects you to do, the Bible equips you to do. I just find that overwhelmingly amazing. Now, how is the question? How does it equip us? Let me tell you how it doesn't. And give you reasons why you shouldn't think that way. It doesn't equip us for every good work by being thick enough and having enough lists so that you can find your decision decided for you as you face a fork in the road. There aren't enough lists in the Bible to do it that way. And there are two reasons why you shouldn't think. That the Bible equips you for every good work by giving you enough lists of right and wrong that you can consult there. Find the one you're facing, pull it out, obey it. Here's the first reason you shouldn't think that way. One, there were no birth control pills in Jesus' day. There was no Prozac in Jesus' day. There was no cloning in Jesus' day no genetic engineering in jesus day no computers no tvs no cell phones no technology no electricity which simply means we are faced with ethical decisions day by day that the bible does not specifically address you won't find a list of how to do birth control in the bible you won't find a list of how to do genetic handling in the Bible. So how does it work then? How does this equipping for every good work, everything a doctor must decide, the Bible will equip him to decide. That's what the text says. Every marriage issue that you must decide about, the Bible will equip you to decide about it. That's incredible. That's an amazing statement. Here's the second reason you shouldn't think that it's a list thing that leads straight to legalism. It leads straight to thinking, OK, Christian ethics is to get my behavior into conformity with these lists. So I'll read the list, take them put them here, act them out. That's not Christian morality. Bringing my external behavior into conformity to a list in the hope that the performance will be favorable to God. That's not Christian morality. Christian morality works totally different. So I'm putting aside that first suggestion and now making the one I think is right. How does the Bible equip you for every good work? By changing the way you are inside so that you assess things God's way. A renewed mind to prove what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. I'll give you some verses. Romans fourteen twenty three. Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. It doesn't matter whether the list is in the Bible or the list is in the reader's digest. Anything you do, whether it's in the Bible or in reader's digest, is sin if it's not coming from faith. There must be a change here in order for these outward acts to be right. Second verse to look at Romans 7 four. my brothers, you have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another to him who's been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. Now notice the shift from dead to law to bearing fruit for God. God is not saying, die to the law and do lawlessness. No, he's saying, die to the law and bear fruit. And what's the link between the two? Die to the law by the body of Christ and belong to another. The essence of Christian morality is having your heart belonging to Christ. He becomes your treasure You become his, and in that warm, personal, joyful, all-satisfying relationship, you are profoundly changed. You love what he loves. You hate what he hates. You think is ugly what he thinks is ugly and beautiful what he thinks is beautiful. You just get changed. And when you're changed, behavior becomes fruit, not work. And the difference between a work and a fruit is the is the mentality of performance as opposed to something growing out naturally from the sap that's coursing through the tree of your life called grace and love and hope and joy and Christ this is the air I breathe. Your holy presence living in me. So my answer as to how Scripture equips us for every good work. Is to say this scripture, as you immerse yourself in it day by day, reveals to you the beauty. The holiness, the greatness, the righteousness, the wisdom, the power of all that God is for you in Jesus. And your heart, by virtue of the Holy Spirit's power, is Drawn out to treasure this Christ that you see in the Bible, and in treasuring him above all television and all money and all sensual pleasures and all family and all job and all success, you are made a radical new person. It cannot happen without immersing yourself in the Bible every day. So that you see him and are changed by him and set free from sin so I'm going to close with reading a quotation from George Mueller Mueller you remember uh, was a pastor who's most famous 120 years ago for his love of orphans and he established a half a dozen orphanages and brought Tens of thousands of orphans through his orphanages. And he's known for his prayer life and his life of faith because he never asked for support. He simply asked God that they would meet the needs of the orphans. And the orphans were never without bread, even though sometimes in the morning it wasn't there yet. So he's a man of most remarkable faith. And I I close with this Lengthy quotation because it is exactly what I want to say. And I thought if I let somebody who was a better prayer and a better believer and a better pastor and a better lover of orphans than I am, say it, maybe it would have more impact. But, you know, this is exactly what I want to say by way of conclusion as to how the Bible equips us for every good work. Okay. what drew me to this is that it was a New Year's message when he was 59 years old. And I'll be 58 in a week or so, and, and this is New Year's Sunday. So hear it spoken across about 120 years from George Mueller to your heart. We have, through the goodness of the Lord, been permitted to enter upon another year And the minds of many among us will no doubt be occupied with plans for the future and the various fears of our work and service for the Lord. If our lives are spared, we shall be engaged in those. The welfare of our families, the prosperity of our business, our work and service for Christ may be considered the most important matters to be attended to. But according to my judgment, the most important point to be attended to is this. Above all things, see to it that your souls are happy in the Lord. Other things may press upon you. The Lord's work may even have urgent claims upon your attention. But I deliberately repeat, it is of supreme and paramount importance that you should seek above all things to have your souls truly happy in God himself. Day by day, seek to make this the most important business of your life. This has been my firm and settled conviction for the last five and thirty years. For the first four years of my conversion, I knew not its vast importance. But now, after much experience, I... Specially commend this point to the notice of my younger brethren and sisters in Christ. The secret of all true, effectual service is joy in God. Having experimental acquaintance and fellowship with God Himself. But, in what way Shall we attain this settled happiness of soul? How shall we learn to enjoy God? How obtain such an all-sufficient soul-satisfying portion in him as shall enable us to let go the things of the world as vain and worthless in comparison? I answer, this happiness is to be obtained through the study of the Holy Scriptures. God has therein revealed himself unto us in the face of Jesus Christ. In the scriptures, by the power of the Holy Ghost, he makes himself known unto our souls. Therefore, the very earliest portion of the day we can command should be devoted to the meditation on scriptures. Our souls should feed upon the word. This intimate experimental acquaintance with him will make us truly happy. Nothing else will. In God our Father and the blessed Jesus, our souls have a rich, divine, imperishable, eternal treasure. Let us enter into practical possession of these true riches. Yea, let the remaining days of our earthly pilgrimage be spent in an ever-increasing, devoted, earnest consecration to God. To which I say, Amen. I just couldn't have said it better myself. So my prayer for Bethlehem this year is, put it in an order, that we might give ourselves by reading, meditation, and memorization to the daily immersion in the Word of God, the Bible. To the end that we might see Christ. Not just words and paragraphs and sentences and arguments, but the person of Christ revealed to us, standing forth the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ is what we want to see there to the end that we might love Him, delight on Him, be happy in Him, To the end, that we might be set free from competing pleasures that the world offers us every day. And thus, to love each other radically, sacrificially, do justice, do mercy. and Don't count the cost for your own life. That's why we read the Bible.